you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us this week. We're going to hear about all the new movies, and we're joined by a trio of critics, Wade Major of Synagogues.com, Andy Klein, who reviews for AV Club, and Amy Nicholson, who's film writer for the New York Times. Amy also hosts the podcast Unspooled. First up this week is the thriller Hypnotic, starring Ben Affleck and Alice uh, Braga. The film is directed by Robert Rodriguez, who also co-wrote the film with Max Borenstein. Wade, what did you think of Hypnotic? I think it's a thoroughly entertaining B-grade imitation of a mediocre Christopher Nolan knockoff. So <laughs> that's my way of saying that it's a very entertaining and above-average Robert Rodriguez movie. Uh, and I, I enjoyed it. I'm not quite sure I can say I'm proud that I enjoyed it. but Yes, it, you shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> I know that Andy's going to tear it apart. I mean, it's, you know, the idea, it, it's got a little bit of... It's got a little bit of uh, of the the Matrix. My wife even said she goes, "That sounds like a, an episode of the old Batman TV series." I'm like, "You're right. There was an episode like that." The idea being that Ben Affleck is a is a is a cop who uh, his daughter was kidnapped and they never found her body, and he there's now a series of bank robberies which appear to be orchestrated by a hypnotist who changes what's going on in your mind. And at a certain point in the script, you real in the film, you realize that what appears to be true isn't true, and people are changing other people's realities in inside their minds and powerful hypnotists are just completely create, recreating these entirely new realities. So what is real and what isn't? And you get into, you run down that rabbit hole, which I know Andy loves. Um, and the thing is, uh, <laughs> most of right. it most of it doesn't really make sense or work, but I didn't care because it's so pulpy and so grindhousey, and it sort of uh, just goes for it in, in such a gusto way that at a certain point I just said, I don't really care if it doesn't make sense. Like the old Batman TV yeah, exactly. show where it was nonsense. Exactly. Yeah. We're talking about the movie Hypnotic, Andy. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I love Robert Rodriguez, and, and I'm on his side generally. And indeed, for the first hour, it is very entertaining. Ben Affleck is actually playing a character who's a bit like in Paycheck, the John Woo film mm -hmm. he did, where he's left hints for himself because something's happened to his brain. But uh, about uh, two-thirds through, it just... Yes, everything changes, and you find out that everything you thought was going on was not what was going on. And then a half hour later at the end of the film, you find out that even that last half hour <laughs> was another— And to me, that kind of neutralizes itself. It becomes, why are we even setting up all these structures in order to try and get some information out of this For guy? For fun! For fun. For fun. <laughs> but there's no way you would do it that way. Yeah. We're talking about Hypnotic, the mystery thriller starring Ben Affleck, Robert Rodriguez, the director and co-screenwriter. The movie's rated R. It's in wide release. The sequel comedy Book Club, the next chapter, stars Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, and Mary Steenburgen. Uh, Amy, what did you think of the new Book Club film? <laughs> well, it is also mindless, somewhat embarrassing fun. So I guess that's our theme this week. Um, the whole setup of Book Club is that Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, Mary Steenburgen, they have been longtime friends since the 70s, and they formed a book club. So they have these regular excuses to hang out. And in the first film that came out in like 2018, I think, they read Fifty Shades of Grey and all got very, you know, eroticized, charged up their love lives. Uh, but in this book, like the, in this movie, basically the returning director just kind of scat like scraps the book gimmick completely. You know, the inspirational book here is technically Paolo Coelho's The Alchemist. It opens with a quote from it. But if you don't know what The Alchemist is about, it doesn't matter. They don't tell you. 
You just have to know that it has something to do with fate. Like really the focus here is just that Jane Fonda's character is engaged for the first time to Don Johnson. So the four girls are going to Italy and mishaps and mayhem and lovely little moments of friendship ensue. It's really just that. I mean, it's kind of hard to call this a movie in the proper sense. It's really just a, a hangout film. Like you're watching these ladies drink wine and make tons of salacious jokes. Like it's really astonishing how they can make everything a double entendre or a naughty reference. Like Candace Bergen references a hip replacement and you're like, whoa. But it really kind of finds, it really feels like there's this genre popping up that's almost like this old school throwback, you know, between like this movie and 80 for Brady that came out a few months ago. It's pretty similar. It also has Jane Fonda, Rita Moreno, Lily Tomlin, Sally Field. It's like they're these ladies are bringing back the kind of Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Road to series. These movies that are really just personality driven escapades where it's like how you feel about the actors and how they're enjoying themselves on screen that counts. I, I do must say, though, like the second act of this film just drags so much. It's just like endless hijinks. And you know that none of them really matter. And when the climax shows up, you know that you're supposed to care. And you almost are annoyed that the film wants you to care about any of this, wants you to care that these people are even playing characters. We just want to ha watch them hang out. That's but literally all. It's funny that, Amy, you compared them to those Hope Crosby road pictures because that was how so many of those films were. They're like funny moments. They started off with a lot of momentum and just sort of like <laughs> lost their way by the end. It was like, what was, what was that about? It's funny you, that you compared that to this. Yeah, they're really similar. They're really similar. And, you know, I want to believe that there's a place in the film ecosystem for that. The kind of just like, I'm going to go out this weekend and turn off my brain a little bit. Book Club, the next chapter starring Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, and Mary Steenburgen. Bill Holderman is the director, co-wrote the screenplay with Aaron Sims. It's rated PG-13 in wide release. The documentary It Ain't Over tells the story of Yogi Berra, baseball Hall of Famer. As a player, he was also uh, a manager and coach over many years in the game. Uh, the film is... Uh, uh, well, uh, directed by Sean Mullen. Andy, what do you think of It Ain't Over? It is a wonderful documentary. Um, the uh, baseball, back in, in those days, in the 50s, when I was growing up in the 60s, baseball was by far the national pastime. I mean, football and basketball had not really reached the kind of prominence they have now. Especially in New York, where there were three <clears throat> professional teams yeah. between the Yankees, Dodgers, and Giants. Right, until the Dodgers came here. And uh, they, uh, Yogi Berra was this uh, incredibly charismatic sort of goofy figure. He was a catcher. He was a great hitter. He won, he has more World Series win rings than anybody. Uh, he ma later managed the team and did a great job. And part of this, it's narrated by his granddaughter. And part of what the documentary is trying to correct is his image was so well known as this sort of little dwarfy looking guy uh, who wasn't pretty and who said all these comical things. These, which were incredibly great yes. malapropisms, many of which he never actually said, yeah, but were attributed but, but to him. A fair number of them he did, and, and as they say here, all of them really made sense when you thought about it. <laughs> you know, it ain't over till it's over. Well, yeah, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. No one goes yeah. there anymore. It's too crowded, which yeah. is my favorite of all of them. They're, they're, they're just all wonderful, and he was very aware of this, but his comic image sort of has historically overshadowed what an important player he was. And the film tries to, re, you know, to correct that misapprehension, and it's filled with testimony from people like Billy Crystal and all sorts of athletes and Bob Costas. Most and, importantly, Vin Scully. Yeah. Vin Scully, Joe Garagiola, who apparently grew up with him. He's, Joe Garagiola said, "I was not only was I not the best ball player in St. Louis, I wasn't even the best ball player on my block because <laughs> of Yogi. And Garagiola was a pretty fine player himself. Yeah. So. 
Yeah. And what so, and 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 eventually, of course, there's the Yogi Bear TV series, which was a sore spot for him because yeah. he had not trademarked his name. Yeah. And suddenly, he's been turned into a cartoon character. Mm. But essentially, he seems like the most lovable, evenly balanced character. Maybe quick to anger, but only under extreme provocation, yeah. and generally by George Steinbrenner, <laughs> who deserved it. Yeah, what, wait, what did you think of It Ain't Over, the Yogi Berra everything, documentary? Everything Andy just said. It's a beautiful film. It brought me to tears. It really did. And I'm not even a baseball fan. Look, I'm wearing a soccer jersey right now. So, you know, <laughs> baseball was never my my sport. It was my father's sport, and, you know, I have friends. So, I mean, I come to this, my wife adores baseball. So I come to this kind of as an outsider, but knowing, you know, what brings people to this place. And, you know, Yogi Berra was, was a guy on funny commercials when I was growing up. That's how I knew him, you know, the Aflac commercials in particular. And so here I find out he's this guy's a legendary athlete on a level I never imagined. I mean, yeah, sure, you knew he was a great player, but not this great. He he, And the the famous Jackie Robinson stealing home moment from the World Series where the question was, did Yogi tag him out or not? And he was called safe. And Yogi, everyone, what people love, even people who agree with Yogi that you got him, they will say to him, you know, he was safe. Just to hear him tell the story, just to set him off, just to get him going. And all three of his sons are interviewed extensively in this. And so you get a great sense of him as a family man, 11 grandchildren. You know, like Andy said, the eldest granddaughter is the one who really narrates this. And uh, and you get a sense of just what he meant to to the Yankees organization, to his family, to the people of New York, to baseball fans. It really puts his life in perspective. It corrects all of these these misperceptions we have that are mostly, again, centered on this larger-than-life personality. And it's funny, you know, our um, our colleague Mark Kaiser from uh, L.A. Film Critics went to school, a good friend of his, his dad was part of the Yankees organization. And I've heard the story firsthand when he went to dinner with Yogi, actually right then and there, and said they, they said, would you like your pizza cut into uh, eight pieces or six? And he said, oh, six pieces, I can't eat eight. <laughs> and that that one is real, and and I've 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 heard it secondhand, not firsthand, but secondhand. It ain't over. Biography of baseball great Yogi Berra, directed by Sean Mullen. It's rated PG. It's in select theaters. It ain't over. Fool's Paradise, a comedy starring Charlie Day and Ken Jeong, Kate Beckinsale, and Adrian Brody are also in the cast. The film is written and directed by Charlie Day, the star of the film. Wade, what'd you think of Fool's Paradise? Absolutely loved it. This is just one of those silly comedies that really takes a lot of great jabs at the entertainment industry in particular. And uh, we haven't had one of those since Bowfinger. So I really appreciated oh, this. It's a long it's, time ago. It's a while ago. And it's basically like a, it, it has, it's shades of being there. Charlie Day did a wonderful job. It's an almost completely nonverbal performance. He's a, he's kind of a, a, a hapless, uh, but lovable, um, homeless guy who falls into a life and career as a, mag a huge movie star through sheer accident by virtue of the fact that he just happens to look like another actor, also played by Charlie Day, who dies for his excesses on a set and they need somebody to replace him. And next thing you know, this hapless guy, this nonverbal, crazy homeless guy is a big movie star. And Ken Jeong plays the manager, the complete loser manager who just gloms onto him and rides him to his own level of success. And there's a lot of Chaplin, there's some Keaton, there's a lot of silent comedy to the performance. Again, it's like being there, you know, the the whole, the, the, the way classic that it, the classic way that it depicts, you know, people just be completely buying into something that isn't really something. So I just, it, is it serious? No. Is it meaningful? No. But it's just so funny and it just takes so many really well-placed shots at Hollywood. I thoroughly loved it. Fool's Paradise, Andy. Uh, I thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, I did not love it nearly so much as Wade. Ken Jeong can get on my nerves really easily, and he did here. Um, yeah, the character is kind of Harpo without a libido, basically. He always has this beatific expression on his face, and we are told early on that he has the intelligence of a five-year-old or a Labrador retriever. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea that he's even able to function at all in this thing is so far-fetched. I mean, yes, it's a satire, <laughs> but this was beyond the ridiculous. Um, yes, it's funny. 
it's just not all that. Damn but how funny. great is Kate Beck? Kate Beckinsale plays Kate Beckinsale's every good. every just prima donna actress who has to have everything all the time and still isn't satisfied, all wrapped in, up into one, and then multiplied times a hundred. It is outrageously funny. And Adrian Brody is Adrian very Brody's funny. Adrian Brody's great. Uh, Ray Liotta's in it. The yeah. late Ray Liotta. Yeah. yeah. What a cast. Fool's Paradise, written and directed by Charlie Day, his feature directorial debut. He stars with Ken Jeong, Kate Beckinsale, Adrian Brody. It's rated R and in wide release. We'll have more reviews coming with our critics in just one minute. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. On LA is 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Andy Klein, Wade Major, and Amy Nicholson. Next up this week is the fantasy film Knights of the Zodiac, starring Sean Bean. Uh, the film is written by Josh Campbell, Matthew Stukin, and Keel Murray. And uh, Tomek Baginski is the director of the film. It's adapted from a manga series. Andy, what did you think of Knights of the Zodiac? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't go to superhero films much anymore because they're all the same film. This is also that film. Uh, the lead character, Saya, is... Some has some kind of power, it's kind of like Jedi, you know, the force that he can tap into sometimes. And it turns out that there's an evil woman, Famke Janssen, who is trying to gather up all those people in order to fight her own daughter, who is a teenager, who is apparently the reincarnation of the goddess Diana. And she's just getting her Diana power together. And Famke Janssen thinks, well, Diana is the goddess of war. She's going to wreak havoc on the world. Meanwhile, Sean Bean is the father who is trying to protect her. And then you get tons of fight scenes that are all CGI and that might as well be animated. Uh, I Those scenes do nothing for me when I can see the CGI clearly. There are some fights that are legit. Um, and there are occasional visuals that are very striking. There's a, during the long training sequence, which is a tradition for martial arts films, he's on this plateau way, I don't know, thousands of feet high, and there are giant sculptures that have broken, but they're still floating in place. And that was really gorgeous. And there is some of that that's gorgeous. But basically... Do you care at the end when it's I've got the the blue glowing power and the bad guy's got the red glowing power and we're going to fight each other and we're going to, you know, good will win for reasons that are really not very sound and it's not even clear that it's good. <laughs> I just to me, this was your absolute mess of a big budget. CGI spectacle. It's adapted from the manga series uh, Saint Seiya by Masami Kuramata. The film Knights of the Zodiac, starring Sean Bean. It's directed by Tomek Baginski. It's rated PG-13 and in wide release. The biographical documentary Still, a Michael J. Fox movie, is directed by the prolific Davis Guggenheim. Wade? Absolutely terrific. Uh, it is both... Uh... 
heartbreaking and inspiring at the same time. And I think that's by design. I think Guggenheim, you know, very, very talented documentarian and uh, chooses not so easy topics and uh, personalities. And here, um, Michael J. Fox, God bless him, he's front and center. Um, at one point, you know, it's it, a lot of stuff that would normally be an outtake. They, they're trying to fix his hair, and he says, no, 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 I want to, you know, I'm, I'm, I look like hell, so I'm going to mess my hair up. And he messes it up because he wants to be real in front of the camera. And that is contrast, is he narrates his own story, tells you, uh, you know, his, his whole miraculous road to stardom, which is really extraordinary. I mean, it was literally, he was, he was eating packets of, of jelly and, and jam <laughs> that he'd stolen from the corner cafe because he had no money left, because his acting career, which had kind of been okay for a few years, but he was on his last legs. He had no money and went to one more audition, and that was Family, family Ties. Family Ties. Oh it was goodness. like the 11th wow. hour, and, the last and, second. And he had to take the call back in a phone booth. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he I'm, didn't have a phone at yeah. home. That he and could, he was yeah. living in an apartment that had one sink, which was in the bathroom, which is where he had to wash his dishes. You know, it was, it's that, it really is that rags to riches in an instant overnight success story. And there's a part of me that feels like that's maybe not the best message to tell a lot of people because there are more people who don't get that shot than there are who do. But it is still incredibly inspiring because we see his talent. Even in all of those those TV roles before it finally hit big, you see the talent. It's just a matter of finding that that connection. And and then the tragedy, of course, of being stricken with with Parkinson's at you know on, early onset at a young age and and having to reinvent your career and and make that a part of your career now. And uh, and not hide from it. And then, of course, his romance with with Tracy Pollan. I mean, a marriage that has it's it's you know going on forty years now. So, um, it's really an incredible story. There are so many moving parts to it, and the fact that Guggenheim is willing to push him to go to these places, and he's willing to go there, it makes it so much richer and so much deeper than what would normally be a, a celebrity profile. I thought it was fantastic. We're talking about the biographical documentary Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. What do you think, Andy? Absolutely agree. This is a wonderful movie, and he seems to have as great an attitude as you could have to this unbelievable, you know, he was in his 20s when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, which is incredibly unusual. Um, and we see him, you know, painful physical therapy all the time. He can afford it, but it still is a he's diminished work. category. And he's still got the quality and the humor that makes Michael J. Fox who, who he is. I was at a press conference with him for The Hard Way, which was right around the time he was diagnosed, but had not did not reveal it for years afterwards. And he was the perfect uh, promoting star. He was clever. He was clearly making up funny on the spot. Um, and uh, just uh, was as likable in that context as he is here and as he was on the screen. I was one of the few critics that gave a rave review to The Hard Way. I'm very proud of <laughs> well, that now. He's a very talented guy. And I wonder, does the film also get into how, you know, the point that he, he felt or chose to be public about having Parkinson's, it, how that kind of made him a de facto spokesman, whether does. he wanted to or not. It does, and, and that he had to rise to the occasion and was very willing to rise to the occasion and to, to be front and center and, and very public about that. What they don't talk about, oddly enough, is the, um, and for, for whatever reason, but is the fact that, you know, a lot of people think that Parkinson's traces itself to when he was 15 and on a Canadian sitcom where four people came down with early onset Parkinson's from that show. But Canadian law doesn't regard four people on a crew of a hundred and some odd to be a cluster. But they still investigated it and found nothing. But it's still, it's a curious you have detail. To wonder. And you have to wonder. But they don't touch on that for some reason. We're talking about the documentary Still, a Michael J. Fox movie directed by Davis Guggenheim. It's streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. You can also see it at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles and at Lemley's NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. The uh, romantic comedy drama Love Again uh, is written and directed by Jim Strauss. Andy, what'd you think? Oh, my God. Um, this is, uh, the limpest romantic comedy I've seen in a long time. There's, I believe I chuckled once 
in this, and it's essentially a commercial for Celine Dion. Uh, she co-produced the film, and the idea is that there's a girl whose boyfriend gets killed in the first two minutes of the film. She sends text messages to his phone, pouring her heart out. That phone number is eventually, two years later, reassigned to somebody else. And this guy, who is a cynical music critic, by coincidence, um, who is working on a Celine Dion piece, is totally fascinated by these messages. And Celine Dion gives him the wisdom that she has gained from her years as a romantic idol. Uh, part of the point of the film is that this cynical New York rock critic can't really get in touch with his feelings and that's why he doesn't appreciate how great Celine Dion is but then he does and frankly I think she's got good chops but it's really uh, not not a fan quite frankly and th this just seems like a promotion of her with a poorly executed rom-com plot tagged onto it. Does she play herself? Yes. Okay, she so it is herself. Celine Dion. It's not her playing a pop star. Well, unless she's playing a fictional Celine Dion and she doesn't really exist in the real world, which I brought up as a possibility. <laughs> We're talking about the movie Love Again with Priyanka Chopra Jonas and Sam Hewen and Celine Dion. Jim Strauss is the writer-director of the film. It's rated PG-13 and it's in wide release. And Celine Dion, of course, doesn't need a lot of promotional vehicles given her long residency in Vegas and the millions of uh, recordings that she sold. Um, but if you're a fan, sounds like it might be for you. We also have the Italian drama that's out this week, Limoncita, the film starring Penelope Cruz and Vincenzo Amato. Uh, Emmanuel Creales is the director and co-screenwriter. Wade, what did you think of Limoncita? I think it's actually quite good. It's not perfect. It has a lot of flaws that I think are still part of this post-Fellini identity crisis that Italian cinema is having they haven't quite figured out what the what Italian cinema in this in this decade in this millennium is going to be. But um, notwithstanding, it's still it's a, it's a compelling drama about a family in the 1970s. Penelope Cruz, who does who's magnificent in all in Spanish, Italian, and in English. Uh, here, it's one of her Italian roles, and she's the mother. It takes place in the 1970s, and their their daughter is adolescent and struggling with her identity, uh, wants to be seen and treated as a boy. And that is the friction that, that kind of generates the, the, uh, the conflict with Penelope Cruz's character, mother and daughter, and uh, eventually dovetails into a teen romance, which is kind of a little bit more pedestrian, and it's, it's a direction the film doesn't need to go. It's a little bit formulaic. But what sets this apart is that uh, when the film debuted last year, Creolese came out and revealed that this is basically autobiographical. Oh. At nearly 60 years of age, this fixture of the Italian industry uh, revealed an, uh, you know, a, his, a personal history that, that kind of changes the way you see the film. So we could very easily, you know, some people may read the synopsis of the film and think, oh, it's exploiting the culture wars on gender and all of this, and it, there, you know, but it really isn't. It's a personal story that kind of lives in its own universe, independent of whatever may be in the news right now. And I would encourage people, however you feel about the subject matter, that this is a personal story that's well worth seeing because it's, um, it's, it's invested with things that are sort of beyond politics, and the performances are very good, and Penelope Cruz is extraordinary. We're talking about the Italian drama Lemoncita, uh, the film directed and co-written by Emmanuel Creoles. Uh, the film is unrated. It's in Italian with English subtitles and on screen at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. The drama The Starling Girl stars Eliza Scanlon, Jimmy Simpson, and Louis Pullman. It's directed and written by Laurel Parmet uh, in her feature directorial debut. Andy? Uh, yeah, this is a film about uh, people who I generally have the hardest time relating to. It takes place in a fundamentalist Christian community in Kentucky. I have all sympathy for them, but I generally don't find them that interesting. But here we have Jem Starling, uh, a 17-year-old girl who is beginning to feel physical desire and gets a crush on the married youth pastor in the group. 
and he hates his wife, and things are going to happen. And, of course, within this milieu, it's it's just the most satanic thing you could do. I mean, they are talking literally, Satan has entered you and possessed you. Uh, it's very sensitively done. Uh, I like the lead actress a lot. And uh, it presents the conflict without exactly, I won't say they take sides exactly. It really is about her coming to terms with what kind of individuality she can express, uh, even though it means alienating her family. Um, I thought this was very well done. Uh, the Starling Girl is the film starring Eliza Scanlon, written and directed by Laurel Parmette. It's rated R and in select theaters. Uh, we only have uh, about a minute left, so uh, let's get started, Wade, but we can continue later. Blackberry film directed and co-written by Matt Johnson, a comedic drama. Yeah, this is a little bit in the same vein as Tetris and Air, which we had recently. It goes back in time, not to the 80s, now we're into the 90s and the origin of the Blackberry. And it's, you know, how how a guy who had just gotten fired from a large tech company teams up very uh, contentiously with a couple of nerds who don't know how to run their own company. And they bring this revolutionary phone to market. We'll hear more about Blackberry, a comedy about the creation of the uh, must-have item, the Blackberry phone. Sometimes uh, people got so addicted it was called Crackberry. Uh, the film is rated R. It's in select theaters. We'll hear more about that when we continue with our critics on Film Week on LAist 89.3. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Limerick Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Film Week on LA. It's 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Amy Nicholson, Andy Klein, and Wade Major. Wade is in the midst of telling us about the film Blackberry. Wade, let's finish that. And then I realize you also saw The Starling Girl, which we were just talking about. And I want to get your take on that first. But Blackberry, a film that you started before the break about a, a, a comedy about the making of the well, phone. Well, it's, I mean, it, it parts may be comedic, but it's actually pretty gritty in many respects. And that may be part of the reason it's a little hard to get into is that it's shot in this, in the same style that was hot for all of those late. 90s TV brokerage commercials where it looks like the cameraman is hiding behind chairs and armoires and they're having a seizure at the same time. And it's very, very distracting. You know, there are these zooms and then the camera jiggles and for no reason really other yeah. than to create that urgency of a, of a, of a kind of a, a, a documentary. Affectation, it's a complete, yeah. it's a documentary affectation. It's a, it's a, uh, a you know, a, a, a Something that just doesn't really, the drama doesn't justify it. But nonetheless, once you get past that, the script is quite good. And the story is very compelling how these guys just, it, it, their backs were to the wall. 
and the nerds didn't know how to you know market their technology they were being taken advantage of and then this guy comes over from you know who's just been fired from a big tech company and he turns it into a real company and next thing you know they own the world and this this ragtag little office is now they're in this giant building and they're selling millions of these things um, and then the iPhone comes and kind of pulls the rug out from under them. And there are other things, too. There are all kinds of financial improprieties. You're, you're, you're privy to the way that particularly good programmers and tech people are hijacked from other companies and some of the unscrupulous methods that they use to, to pull people from Google and pull them from other companies when they need somebody who only knows how to execute one particular thing. It's actually a great insight into that world, and, and it, it kind of clouds a lot of the technology that I think we'd like to believe is sort of pure. That, <laughs> that the process by which we get that beautiful new computer or that phone somehow is an above-board process. And it really reveals that world to be just as dirty and corrupt as every other. It's based on the 2015 book Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of BlackBerry. How's the acting in it, Wade? Acting's very, very good. I mean, it's it's solid. I mean, these guys are pretty ruthless. Uh, it's a Canadian film, so most which of is the, appropriate. Canadian it company. It is a Canadian company, and you know, a lot of people put the the Canadian accent on. Michael Ironside is in it just a little bit, but he puts that actual Canadian accent on. It's very, very good. Um, and Jay Baruchel, you know, is the most recognizable name in it. Plays one of the two nerds who would eventually become co CEO of the company. Uh, really, it's it's top notch. They they really kind of capture exactly what it is that they're playing. Blackberry is rated R. Matt Johnson, the director and co-screenwriter. It's in select theaters. Now, back to that film, The Starling Girl, which Andy shared uh, the things that he appreciated about the movie starring Eliza Scanlon. Wait, what did you think? I'm a little less enthusiastic. It's well done. It's well acted. It's well written. It just, it has a... Uh, it's it's still a Madame Bovary narrative. Uh, is Bovarian a word? Can I say Bovarian? You can coin it. Why I'll not? coin it. Um, which is it's kind of the inverse of my problem with most faith-based cinema, which is you you walk in knowing that there is a template that they're going to follow. And in the faith-based films, it is somebody's life is out of control. They find Jesus, and you know everything is is good at the end, but they have to sacrifice something to get there. In these films, it is typically people who are part of a very, very um, structured religious community, and they it, 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 they feel kind of sexually oppressed by it, and then the opportunity for romance and love manifests itself, and they have some kind of an illicit affair, and then eventually ostracize themselves from the community and find freedom. So in both of those scenarios, one is very pro-religious community, the other is somewhat anti but the trajectory is the same, and it's preordained, and it's very formulaic, and it's it sort of manifests itself very early here. So even if you sit there and you enjoy the acting and you enjoy how well put together the film is, knowing the roadmap follows this very, very precise uh, formula kind of takes away. But again, Andy, you, you like The Smiling yeah, Girl. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this was really well done and, again, engaged me in a group of people that normally I would have a very hard time <laughs> engaging with because I am not in a structured religious community. <laughs> the Starling Girls rated R in select theaters. Next up, the Netflix action thriller The Mother, starring Jennifer Lopez and Joseph Fiennes. The film's directed by Nikki Caro. Uh, the film written by uh, Andrea Berloff, Peter Craig, and Misha Green. Andy, what'd you think of The Mother? It's awful. Uh, it's The story here is that... Uh, uh, Jennifer Lopez plays this really hard case who was involved with two different guys and one had arms and the other one had a distribution network and she brokered a deal and then she she turned on them to the FBI. And so they both are after her and they have kidnapped her daughter who she gave up for adoption and we don't know which of these two guys is the father. Uh, and all she cares about, she's doesn't see her daughter for 12 years had given her to a nice family to raise an idyllic family i should say and then she finds out the kid's in danger and she goes off on this rampage to bring down these two guys uh it seems about halfway through like it should be over when she basically rescues the girl but then it turns the second half into one of those training the 12-year-old to be 
a hard case herself, much like Hannah, which was a much better film, or uh, what was it with Nicolas Cage, Kick-Ass. Okay. Those were... Yeah. Uh, Taking us back there. Yeah. i got to say, this film, it had chase sequences that had the worst action cutting I've ever seen. Ever. Ever. I mean, I, I was just stunned. I mean, I thought this is sub-professional level. Yeah. Wow. For a Jennifer Lopez film, uh, the first... Uh, 15, 20 minutes are incredibly dimly lit for no discernible reason. Uh, it's it's just a, a mess. Wow, the mother, Wade? This kind of defines everything that's wrong with Netflix uh, and the movies they make. There's no oversight. There's no development. There's no process. They're just throwing money at stuff and, and mediocre stuff and then throwing money at stars to attach them. Nikki Caro is so much of a better director than this, and that's what's so disappointing. You know, this is the direct... This is the woman who made... Whale Rider. I mean, it, you know, there's so it's just disappointing to see this. I I don't know how much more I need to say than Jennifer Lopez plays a former Army Special Forces sniper from Afghanistan. The stretch that it takes to actually buy into that, and no disrespect to Jennifer Lopez as an actress, but but she has to do an enormous amount of heavy lifting to make you forget that she's Jennifer Lopez before she can make you believe that she's a Special Forces sniper. And that never happens. And then, yeah, the action scenes, the cutting, poor Joseph Fiennes, this guy was in a Best Picture winner. Yeah. Here he's playing, you know, like a knockoff Bond villain with scar makeup on his face. It's just... There's nothing good about this film. It's an absolutely excruciating ordeal to have to watch. The Mother, starring Jennifer Lopez, is rated R. It's streaming on Netflix. Finally this week, Monica, uh, the film starring Emily Browning and Patricia Clarkson. The film's directed by Andrea Palaoro, uh, who co-wrote the screenplay with Orlando Tirado. Wait, what'd you think of Monica? Not much. It's, uh, it's pretty pretentious. It's a well-intentioned and mostly well-acted story about this woman who comes, you know, you can never go home again, but they always do. And uh, she comes home after being ostracized from the family to help care for her dying mother. And, of course, there's all kinds of family friction, and she's got a history, and she has issues. And it's all very pretentiously photographed, which kind of takes away from the performances. Uh, There's some decent stuff, I guess, for an indie film of this level, but I wouldn't recommend it. Monica's rated R. It's in select theaters. It's Film Week on L.A. Estate. 89.3. More with our critics when we come back in one minute. It's Film Week on L.A. It's 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Andy Klein and Wade Major. I want to talk about a few things that are big in movies right now. One of them, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which came out last week, leading the box office, doing extremely well. Another example of a film that is a tentpole that's brought people in. Wade, your thoughts about where we are when it comes to the theatrical box office and what we learned from Guardians? Uh, it's interesting. You know, the, the box office was doing about $10 billion a year domestically before the pandemic and had been for about a decade, give or take. And then it dropped to $2 billion in 2020, which went up to $4 billion in 2021, which went up to $8 billion in 2022. So the question is, are we now in this year, are we going to get back to that $10 billion a year? And I don't think we will. I don't think we're going to cross it. But it does show that people are willing to come out to certain movies to the same degree that they were before. It's not a question of whether people are willing to go back to the movies. It's a question of are there enough movies to bring them out. And so Guardians definitely proves that the audience is there. You just have to, if you make it, they will come. So what Guardians also shows us, though, is I think it shows us where the Marvel Universe has gone. And that, you know, Marvel films have been dominating this increasingly for about 20 years. So people still want to see Marvel films, but they're being more selective. They want to see Marvel films do what they used to do, which is very different from what they've been doing. So Guardians is a throwback. It's a throwback to its own first two films, but it's a throwback to what we had before this current Marvel phase. And what is that phase? I mean, is it just that the, the, aside from the Guardians uh, part of the Marvel franchise, that they're duplicative of each other? We're, we're not, there's not the surprisal value or freshness? Yeah, that I, I, if something happened with Endgame, and Endgame kind of was, it's 
tough. It's tough to top. So they want us to reinvent the whole thing. Now we're supposed to get behind, you know, Jonathan Majors is the new big bad, and we're supposed to start all over again. You can't really expect people to do that emotionally to just kind of hit the reset button and say, okay, now I'm going to start as if Iron Man were the first movie all over again. So you you have to understand now that I think these are little not it's the not the Marvel Cinematic Universe. These films are their own little universes. Guardians is its own universe, and the people with its who, own fans with its own fans and people aren't going to see it because it's part of the larger universe now they're going to see it because you know that's that's its own universe it's those characters that i love i don't care if it intersects with 25 other movies i don't care about the meta narrative i just care about that narrative and those characters well it's fascinating because we we have the the book club um sequel that's out this week as well which is aimed at an older and and largely women's audience with you know veteran comedic stars leading that film and andy i find it fascinating that you have you know the the superhero movies the marvel universe and then these films that are aimed at older audiences which have been a much harder demographic to get back into theaters yes um because it is much easier and to watch at home and you don't have the spectacle aspect of it which you know if i were going to want to see a marvel film which i have not wanted to do for a couple of years i would want to see it in a theater on the big screen with the the you know the sound the, sound, the, the whole yeah, widescreen all of it uh i don't know to what extent those uh, older women's films, and there have been a whole batch of them. Eighty for year Brady, and Jane, yeah, it seems like Jane Fonda. Stars Jane Fonda in all of them. and Diane <laughs> Keaton and Lily Tomlin, and they've been doing a bunch of these. And I know uh, uh, Eighty for Brady, I think, that did do one. well, yeah. but I don't know that any of these others do do well. They do. I mean, they do well enough once you break into all the different revenue streams. They do well enough theatrically. Then you add in the disc and streaming and tele, you know, overseas and and planes and you know. Once you kind of throw everything into the pot, they come out ahead. Well, and and this again, you know, raises the whole question: for whom are theatrical movies being made? And it appears at this point, it is, with the exception of some of the movies like Book Club. Um, that it is largely at the younger movie-going audience. Yeah. But, you know, we were just talking on, on Air Talk on Thursday about how, you know, when you poll younger people, movies are way down the list of things they're interested in, well behind video games, etc. Everyone, everyone forgets the audience that started the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that went to see Iron Man, that audience is 20 years older now. And their tastes are changing, as they always do with older audiences. And it is true when you look at when you look at the data for um, what the, the various age demographics and their percentage of the population, and then their percentage of the movie-going audience. Once you get over thirty, over forty, over fifty, those numbers drop precipitously as a percentage of the of the audience because they're not making movies for them. So, you know, someone smart would be would be well advised to start making movies for older audiences. I think that the data on uh, on Top Gun Maverick was that yes, more than 50% of the audience was over 35. That hasn't happened in a very long time. But that got the audience really throughout demographics. It, it did, but but over 35 being more than half the audience, and it's, and it's the same thing for Elvis, same yeah. thing for Knives Out, like 61% of the audience for Knives Out is over 35. You know, so there there are there's an audience out there for movies an older audience, and they will come if you make it. Let's talk, I, I mentioned video games and how much that superseded movies for younger audiences. We've had rare successes with adaptations of video games, but two recent ones that have been huge, Super Mario Brothers movie and the HBO Max streaming The Last of Us. So, Wade, what, what's enabled those to succeed where dozens of others before have failed? It's it's lightning in a bottle. You have to have because those are both so different. Mario Brothers uh, it, it goes back. It's a nostalgia thing. It's a little bit like Top Gun. It's like the Tetris movie as well. You know, uh, even Blackberry. I mean, we're talking about these things that come from a culture in the '80s and the '90s. And if you can tap into something that really triggers somebody's nostalgia reflex, they'll come and see it. Uh, Last of Us. I think it's just it's you know I don't think that has anything to do with the video game. I think that's about Finding something that is that get, lets you tell a great story, instill it with great writing, a great premise, 
Uh, but ultimately, I think you have to execute on the filmmaking end. You can't lean yeah. on nostalgia. And uh, I mean, I would point out that there was an earlier Mario Brothers film that yeah. was awful and that did no business, I think, exactly. at all. Yeah, that's good. And it's kind of become a cult film as bad as it was. Yeah. Just yeah. some of these things live, live on. Andy, why is it so hard to adapt video games to film? Is it just well, they're to- totally distinct genres? The, yeah, the, the structure is wrong. There was a film called Silent Hill which was an adaptation of a video game. And it really tried to be true to the game, which meant that every 10 minutes you would either die or ascend to a different level. And it was just like this random thing where 10 minutes on by the clock, a bell would go off and your time was up. And it's just not a narrative structure that works it's it's worth remembering too you know Uwe Boll the notorious German director (laughs) literally made his career by running out optioning the rights to video games and turning them into terrible movies which the fans of those video games then completely unjudgmentally would go and see he built a career on it including the film Postal which I still say is the worst film ever made bar none I haven't heard his name mentioned on filmmaking in a very long time yeah but is that the one that was Nazi gold funded it or something. Oh, I can't remember. I can't even remember. But some it's, scandal. It's truly appalling. And 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 yet, but there, Uwe Boll made a fortune and a career off of doing just that and and doing it badly. But there's an audience for these things. Wait, just real quickly, we got like a minute left. How significantly is the writer's strike going to change the production of films? Uh, it's going to change it very significantly. Uh, we're, you know, Netflix is where people are focusing most of their ire. As we talked about, films like The Mother represent a new way of making movies, and Netflix doesn't want to change their license, the way that they they buy the rights to TV series. Uh, they don't want to pay residuals because it kind of undermines the whole business model. And or, I think, or disclose viewership. Or disclose viewership yeah. and, and data numbers, and they're, and all that's going to change. So we're not going to go back to the way things were pre-streaming, but we're, it's going to be a new day kind of streaming 2.0. And uh, I don't think anybody quite knows what it's going to look like, but it's going to be very different. All right. Thanks so much. We appreciated our critics this week on Film Week. Wade Major of Synagogues.com, Andy Klein of AV Club, and Amy Nicholson of the New York Times and the podcast Unspooled. Thank you so much for joining us for Film Week. If you missed any portion of our critics' reviews or our discussion at the end of this week's program, you can hear it in its entirety by going to Elias.com slash Film Week. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts or on the LAist app. Have a wonderful weekend from all of us at Film Week. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis... There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.